Jenna. And I'm Sam. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hey everyone, we are here with Cincinnati Zoo Tales. I'm Jenna. And I'm Sam. Welcome back to another episode. We've got a really exciting one today. We have Steve Foltz with us, and Steve is the director of horticulture here at the Cincinnati Zoo, and I'm going to put an emphasis on botanical garden right there. So Steve's in charge of everything beautiful you see growing around the zoo. And Steve has been with the zoo, he's going on his 33rd year, so he knows so much more than Jenna and I put together, <laughs> and probably everybody in the office we're in right now about what's growing around the zoo. So we're going to chat with Steve today and, and learn about what's what's popping up around, around the springtime. Yeah, I'm so glad Sam put an emphasis on the botanical garden because that is one thing that makes the Cincinnati Zoo and botanical garden so special. And we have the most amazing flowers and plants and trees all year round. But coming up soon in April, we'll have, um, you know, the big tulip bloom and lots of other flowers to talk about. So just hit us with whatever exciting part you want to tell us about first. Well, first off, you have the name wrong. Oh, oh no. It's the Cincinnati Botanical Garden <laughs> and Zoo. So let's get that straight. You know, Got starting it. in April, we're, we keep trying to pitch to Thane, at least give us April. The month of April. <laughs> I we'll think that's fair. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we uh, the big display we have is the obviously the tulips. We plant over 120,000 tulips a year. Uh, this year we plan maybe a little less. We're only to about 100,000. So, uh, but that is probably the largest display in the uh, Midwest. And uh, so we put a lot of emphasis on that. We have, you know, again, we, we're an enclosed site and, you know, we don't have deer. And so for the public, it's really, it's kind of sometimes hard to get, grow tulips at home. Uh, they come up to bloom and the deer eat them off. And, uh, um, but at the zoo, we don't have that problem. So, uh we really focus on that display. It's just a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, Holland coming to the zoo for a couple of weeks. And, uh, but it, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, it's the most beautiful sight you'll ever see. I really like think people should come just to see the tulips. I remember last year in 2020 when we couldn't have visitors to see all of the hard work that your department put into planting these tulips. And it was just so gorgeous and so sad. Um, it ended up being fun for employees. We got to take the cuttings home and make beautiful bouquets and um, enjoy the tulips ourselves. But you said over 100,000. Do you guys have a full staff right now? Do you, are you having volunteers help? How did you make that happen? I also am really interested in how you decide where to put what colors because it always turns out fantastic. Well, good. Uh, well, it, it's interesting. 2020 was this, the most unusual year we've ever had. And uh, the one thing that really came out of it that was just positive was uh, we ended up taking a lot of those tulips, uh, cut tulips, to all the, the nurses in the hospitals and oh, yeah. uh, and that was just spectacular. We really enjoyed doing that and uh, you know so you know it, something good came out of it. That's the main thing and um, it takes I would say about three to four weeks to plant 120,000 tulips and we uh, basically design it uh, starting the year, you know, things are in bloom. So I'd say our peak time is anywhere from April 10th through April 25th. And usually I say April 15th, boy, it always hits really good on April 15th. Now, if you have a real warm spell, it could go up a little earlier, it could go a little later, but uh, generally mid-April is peak bloom. And uh, so we'll have one of those bloom meters going, I'm sure. And um, but uh, it really is, uh, there's no other display like this around. So 
that is fun. But we again, we'll take volunteers, we'll take students. We have the zoo school; they'll help us. Uh, we've got students from Sensei State come in and help us, and um, you know, we'll literally we'll take anybody helping uh, plant, and then we actually dig all the tulips back out. Uh, and then we, you know, sell them for five dollars a bag and get them out of out of the zoo really quickly. Uh, and the reason we do that, everyone said, "Well, why do you do that?" Well, our we have one of the largest annual trial displays in the country, and uh, we have over forty thousand annuals we put in with three hundred and fifty different varieties. And literally, as soon as those tulips are done, they're dug out, and we till the beds, and literally within a week. We're replanting that, so we don't have time for them to die down, and um, and so it, and we really don't plant them that, that deep. They're only three three inches deep, probably, so uh, a little bit less than you know what you would do at home, probably. Wow, yeah, that's amazing how much work you can get done so quickly, and all the the help. And how can you keep track of what color each bulb is? They they come in so actually uh, uh, Brian Jorg used to do our our annual our tulip display, and um, we passed that on to uh, Kira, uh, one of our horticulturists, Kira Back, and now uh, Tosh uh, Dobias is uh, our main designer, and she gets to pick the colors. Uh, you can't have two or three people in there picking the colors. It just doesn't work. You know how that goes. Oh, yeah. uh, what kind of color you want on your wall? Well, you know. So she gets to decide. And, and really what it comes down to is, you know, whether you're doing the pastels or you're doing the hots. And, and you know, as long as you're mixing, um, you know, the right, you know, kind of shades, you're going to be fine. And... Uh, they said, uh, we really look for design right when the tulips are in full bloom. We're like, okay, maybe next year we'll do, you know, a little bit swath of this. And I like that with that color, but I really didn't like how that color came out. So, you know, and again, all of them are, are uh, brought in uh, from Holland. Wow. And, uh, you know, and again, it's, uh, you know, we, we try different varieties and see which ones we like. Um, you know, there was uh, one there's world's favorite, I think was one last year I really liked and you know there's just certain ones that you know hey that one you know we go by weekends and uh, did it hit one Saturday and then it was gone or did it hit three Saturdays and it was a you know a hit and um, you know people like Angela and Amy believe it or not they they're like, hey, no more of that tulip. That tulip wasn't very nice. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you'd be surprised how much yank your, your folks have here. So, uh, and we listen to them. So, so there's a little bit of a photogenic factor that goes into the selection process. Oh, you better believe it. it I mean, I would assume that's, that's all about the colors and the beauty that people come in to see for those tulips that are blooming. Yeah. When you're mapping them out, do you have just a map of the zoo and do you like color coordinate saying, okay, like these are the reds up here and this is what's going on? Right, right. We've, we've got uh, many different beds and, and you know, the zoo's kind of like a giant, you know, I'd say container garden. There's little beds here and there. And so it's really easy to go, okay, this bed over here gets five different colors and you know, and usually there's early tulips, mid tulips, and late tulips. And the early tulips, so those are the ones that kind of, they kind of flash in the pan really quick. They go out, uh, so we don't use that many of those. But you need one bed because when you know Chad says, "Hey, we need to, you know, get a photo, you know, let people know that they're starting to bloom." Well, you need that early tulip there, and uh, and the late tulips. By the time they hit the late tulips, people are ready. That they, they've already hit spring, they're ready to move on to summer. So uh, so we, we mainly hit for that mid-tulip. Mid
but a lot of fun though. A lot of fun. It's so beautiful, yes. And everyone has their favorites and like it's favorite flower bed. I know you guys had these beautiful dark like purplish blue ones last year that were amazing. And then the hyacinths, mm. is that correct? Yes. yes. Are blooming and they smell so good mm. and those are beautiful. Um, but there are so many spring plants blooming, right? Do you have other favorites you want to tell us about? or? Well, on the bulb side, uh, like you said, the hyacinths are one of my favorite because they smell so good. Uh, there's a blue one called Blue Jacket that I really, really like, and uh, you know, uh, you know. So, so sometimes we we try to plant hyacinths kind of throughout the park. So as you're walking through, you get fragrance, you know, catches a fragrance here and there, and it, it kind of pulls you through the garden. And uh, that's smart because you catch all sorts of fragrances yeah. <laughs> around the zoo. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's nice yeah, to hit it with some good ones. Yeah, that that is a fact. So. Uh, <laughs> And then, uh, you know, there's other bulbs. In fact, I, I picked one for you guys. This is Snowdrops. It's actually blooming right now in the garden. So uh, there's a lot of different uh, flower bulbs that you can use that are early, you know, real early, like now. And, uh, you know, you hit, you know, early April. And once you hit early April, you've got the daffodils. And, and uh, deer won't eat the daffodils. So that's kind of a better choice for the homeowner. And uh, so the bulb side, that's... Uh, you know, those are the couple favorites, and uh, yeah, but perennials. You know, other other. There's loads of other plants. We can talk about those here shortly. Okay. Now, when it comes to the planting, do you just plant it? Are you hands off after that and let nature do its work, or do you have constant care that goes into making sure that these tulips and all the other plants around the zoo are continuously growing? Well, that is a great question, um, and one that requires a very careful answer. Um, <laughs> We get known a lot because we do the tulips and the annuals, everything, everyone thinks, oh, all they do is the color. Um, but really, when we start any new project, any plant, any planting at all, we always look for the hundred-year-old trees. You know, we always go, okay, this area doesn't have enough hundred-year-old trees. So we want to go for the oaks and the sugar maples and the beech. And we want to make sure that as we move through our career, a uh, hundred years from now, we're going to see some big trees that, well, we're not going to see them. But we want to make sure that everywhere people walk throughout the zoo, there's hundred-year-old trees. To be honest with you, the flowers and the annuals are planted underneath those soon-to-be hundred-year-old trees. But that gives us, you know, we water and fertilize, and that really keeps those hundred-year-old young trees that we just planted looking fresh and good. And once those trees get big enough and the roots compete outcompete the annual beds, then we kind of move on to a perennial or a shrub planting in that bed. And then we move another annual bed to another sunny new site. So a lot of our annual beds kind of go with the, the flow. But it's first, shade trees and long-term trees. Second, it's understory color trees like dogwoods and redbuds and crab apples and, and uh, many different types of uh, understory trees. And, and then there's the screening. Uh, so, you know, if you walk in the front entry over, your over the bridge and you get over that bridge, you're in the zoo. And if you look to your right, you don't notice that there's 30,000 cars a day going down Vine Street. All you see is a really big, beautiful, evergreen screen. And uh, a lot of that screening uh, keeps you kind of focused in on, on your little room, on your exhibit, on things that you're going to look at. Uh, if there's a fence that you can see, then we didn't do our job very well. 
Um, so, and then really the, the annuals and perennials, the, the beds that are a little bit more care, uh, those are the icing on the cake. Uh, you know, we, we've got that cake baked and it's looking good, but you know, a little icing, you know, <laughs> and the annuals maybe are love the candles on fire, you know. So, so again, those are temporary, but very important because, uh, you know, you, you know, we, well, well, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll get into the pollinators later. Definitely. Now, just to give you a visual that Steve was talking about earlier about some plants that he did pick and bring in, and he's got them laid out on the table over here. So, I mean, if you could just go through and tell us about what you have here with us. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so right now, if you walked outside, of course, this, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, uh, where it's a March, uh, you know, mid-March, uh, well, I'm looking at, uh, there's snowdrops, which is a little tiny white flower, that's uh, a bulb, uh, that's a great landscape uh, perennial bulb to kind of put in between your perennials and your shrubs, right next to your patios and your walkways, beautiful bulb. Uh, a little more rare plant, this one's winter jasmine. This actually blooms in February when we get those warm days. Um, not very hardy, you have to kind of keep it in a protected location. But it's one of those things that we plant just so, you know, horticulturists are, we have a little more fun than most people. Because <laughs> things are blooming early and we see them and other people may just walk right by them and they could be in full bloom. Uh, like this one. This one's a uh, witch hazel that's blooming outside. So smell that and see if it has any fragrance for you. And, uh, so is oh, that wow. fully bloomed? Because I, yeah, I would assume this was like the. Um... Yeah, that's full bloom. Okay, <laughs> I would think it was in the what stage? Oh my gosh, it smells amazing. Oh yeah, now that I look closer, I see little flowers. Yeah, so, but to the untrained eye, yeah, it yeah. does look like it's just um, sprouting right. up off the yeah, branch. Yeah, yeah, like budding, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah, is what right. I would have thought. Oh and, my gosh. And uh, so, so you know, there's a lot of things like that are blooming now. There's one of my favorite perennials for shade that the deer won't eat, and it's, it's long-term shade perennial, is Lenten Rose, Helleborus orientalis, and it's a Lenten Rose, it's the season of Lent, that's when it blooms. Okay. So it is in full bloom right now. Um, so, you know, those are some of the things that are uh, blooming early to mid-March, uh, and then they all kind of go away. Well, the Lenten Rose lasts for about four to six weeks, so it's a pretty long bloomer. But a lot of these will fade and move on, and then the next two weeks, about every two weeks, you get plants changing over. So, you know, March to mid-March, then mid-March to April, and then April to April 15th, and, you know, there's just a, a whole series of different things that come out into bloom. And, uh, and right now we've got silver maples in full bloom, and elms, this is a, an elm tree, and that's in full bloom. Um, so it's you know, it's, it's fun flowers. exactly yeah, think of the leaves and uh, like maples are are you know they're wind pollinated but the bees love uh, maples they're very important for the bees and uh, this time of year there's not a whole lot blooming uh, you know right now it's witch hazels it's uh, Persian parodia um, some of the favorite bee uh, plants are the maples. And uh, there's a plant, Cornus officinalis kentucky, which is Whoa. one of my favorites. <laughs> That's a fun one to say. Yeah, it's actually it's blooming right up by Thane's office, if you can see it kind of up against the wall. It's a pretty yellow plant, upright. Um, but, you know, it's important to plant 
plants early in the season and very late in the season, those shoulder seasons for the, the pollinators. Absolutely. And it, so this, taking it back just a second, you said you always have like something to look forward to basically. So in my mind, in the animal world, it's like one animal in your department might be pregnant and you wait like however many months for that baby to come. But you guys have that all year round, no matter what, you don't have to wait for the SSP to tell you they can breed. You don't have to wait for them to make it happen. You always have something to look forward to and like a new baby to come. So that sounds oh, yeah. fun. It and is. Then, <laughs> it is. Yeah, something to look forward to. And then you have something to also plan like so that it is best for pollinators and different animals and and just so it works out best for the zoo to always look full and beautiful um, and you mentioned some plants are best for pollinators so can you give people I don't know how many scientific names you know but can you give people like three plants that they might recognize <laughs> the name and could find it at a local nursery that they could plant to help pollinators here great, in Ohio? Great question and uh, my first ones uh, will come into bloom about um, you know, I would say, I'll give you two small trees in the spring. One is the Yoshino cherry. That's the one that you see at the, uh, the Washington around the tidal basin. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they do really well around here and the honeybees just absolutely love cherry. And uh, so, so that's a really great one for honeybees. But another really good one that most people would know is redbud. Yes. Redbud is phenomenal for pollinators. You see them all on the hillsides with that kind of rosy lavender color before any other trees leaf out. And uh, so usually between, you know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of the cherries first followed redbuds right there, right behind. And uh, at the zoo, we probably have 15 different cultivars of redbud. There's wow. pink ones, uh, Appalachian red is a hot pink. And there's uh, one called uh, uh, Texas white, uh, royal white. It's uh, a white well, we call them white buds instead of red buds, and we have weeping ones, and we have uh, yellow ones. There's a yellow, yellow foliaged one up at the education center called Hearts of Gold, and so there's a lot of different places you can plant a red bud that also is good, great for pollinators. Um, and then, you know, of course, the whole summer thing will come. Um, you know, and you know, sometimes people are looking for a great pollinator for shade, which is really hard uh, to find, but there's a, uh, it's called pulmonaria, it's called lungwort, it's a horrible name, Yeah. <laughs> um, but it has these really nice uh, kind of red to blue flowers, and it's just a small clumping uh, plant, uh, but there's a new variety called Trevi Fountain Ooh. that is unbelievably blue, and the bees love it, and uh, so there's just... You know, and again, each season, we have to come back and do this again and talk about the summer and the fall plants. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. And winter evergreens, so. <laughs> uh. um, I want to say one thing about the redbud. I have one in my front yard, and I'm not kidding. Everyone should plant one if you want entertainment and you love pollinators. I didn't realize that I was just sitting on my front porch one day, and I heard all the buzzing. And I hadn't been paying attention, but then once I did, I saw, I'm not kidding, hundreds of teeny little, like, fly-looking bees or different insects and then the bumblebees or I, I don't really know exactly all that but there are so many different species and I just sat there and watched them for like an hour it was so fascinating to watch and so cool to see that like this tree the only thing that was blooming was feeding all of these animals and helping them but then it was so sad because it doesn't last the flowers don't right. last as long as I was hoping for 
Um, so yeah, I highly suggest planting a red bud if you want some entertainment from your local insects. And then you mentioned cultivars. Can you explain that a little bit and the different, is it like a subspecies? How does that work? Great, great question. And, and again, a lot of people are a little confused on the word cultivar. The cultivar, the, the word stands a cultivated variety. So basically, um, you know, take a red bud. All red buds are, you know, kind of either multi multiple stem. They have the green leaves and they have the rosy uh, lavender flowers. They all look roughly alike. Well, a cultivar, um, you know, say you're walking down the street and you saw a red bud that actually was weeping and you went, that's different. And so literally you would have to take a cutting of that or a bud of it and graft it or bud it on to a seedling red bud which, you know, that's what nurserymen do for a living. And, and if, if you do that, you're actually physically taking a piece of the mother plant and asexually propagating it so every one you have is identical to that. Now, if, if we were in a natural area, that would be a big no-no. You don't want to do that. But we're, we're in the urban landscape. You know, some people can't afford to have a 15, 25-foot red bud in their, in their yard but they could put one in that was only like five foot. And, and, uh, and some of them, you know, one of them has red foliage on it um, and, and weeping. And maybe there's a weeping one that shows up with white flowers. And so, so basically cultivars are just, you know, you walk by and observe a different trait or characteristic, and then you propagate that uh, for that trait or characteristics. And, and again, a lot of people get confused on Oh well, we've manipulated the plant, and pollinators can't visit it, and that—that that is true on certain things like hybrid tea roses, and you know, you know, if you have uh, cone flowers, one of the favorites of pollinators. But if you get the cone flower that is just loaded and double pom pom, the pollinators aren't going to be able to get there. So, so there are certain cases where a cultivar might be. Uh, a negative, but 99% of the time, it's just observing something that's a little bit more unique. And uh, again, our observations, we see cultivars and pollinators going hand in hand and being perfectly happy. And actually, we, we have a program called the Buzz Troop. And uh, it's a program that Deb Zurich uh, developed over the last four or five years. And they go out with cameras and they take photos of you know, bees and insects pollinating and, you know, they don't know the pollinators, they don't know the plants, but they take pictures of the label, the pollinator and the plant, and that's kind of our evidence that, well, yeah, that one, that one had plenty of pollinators on it. So, so we're actually doing a lot more research on cultivars for pollinators, which is Pretty good cutting-edge research here. and I had no idea you were doing that. So that is yeah. a Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden thing. Yeah. And um, your horticulture team is doing that, or our guests doing we, that? Is there something people can be a part of? Uh, right now, it's uh, it's a horticulture thing because we're um, you know we're we're just trying to because what we would find is people say, well, it's a cultivar, but they aren't good for pollinators, and we're like. You know, we just kind of blew it off for a while. So, well, that's silly. You know, that's you know, we see them all the time. Well, then people are getting serious, saying, "Well, yeah, you can't use cultivars." And it's like, "Well, wait a second. We we see cultivars and bees happily coexisting. Um, so, we figured we'd better get a little bit more better research on this. And Great. we're actually working with Ohio State, Joe Boggs, uh, with this program, volunteers. 
and we're going to slowly ramp that up more than just the teens that started the program. So that's lot, awesome. Lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Now I know we don't have you don't have to worry about deer around the zoo. Well, we've got a lot of squirrels. <laughs> I wish you all could see his face right now. <laughs> and I, I have seen squirrels digging up bulbs the best they can um, from time to time. And if you've been to the Cincinnati Zoo, you know the squirrels are fearless. Um, they, they think they run the zoo. How do you deal with squirrels and just being curious and wanting to dig up all your hard work? Well, I, I can tell you this. Uh, Squirrels are, are wonderful creatures, um, but you know, we also have things like gorillas and, and rhinos and you know, the, the, the joke is who's smarter, the, the animals or the horticulturist, and we, we've lost every time. So, so we, we understand you out there with the deer. Uh, try, try a rhino uh, walking through your yard, we get it. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we do, like our, our tulip beds, we'll put netting on and yeah, we, we've kind of gone to certain tactics that we can kind of coexist with them. You'll see them underneath the netting getting the bulb and kind of looking at you like, ah, you know, <laughs> you're not smarter, smarter than we are. Um, but, you know, when you get 100,000 bulbs, you can, you, you can plant a few extra <laughs> for the squirrels. So, uh, and rabbits are also like a homeowner. It's very, you know, tough to put your garden out and then all of a sudden all of it's gone because of rabbits or deer. Uh, so a lot of times you, you have to, you know, in smaller gardens, do exclusionary, you know, put up little fencing uh, for the, the beginning. And, and then, you know, as you talk to other gardeners, you know which ones you can plant that the deer won't eat or the squirrels won't eat or the rabbits or you name it. And that's something that uh, Steve mentioned that you don't have to compete with gorillas or rhinos at home. And some people might not realize that you guys are in charge of actually designing our animal habitats, or a big part of the outdoor habitats that people are seeing. And it is a lot of work and a lot of like a compromise, I should say. For example, if you look out in the giraffe yard, giraffe will eat any tree you know, possible. They'll eat the bark and everything that keeps the trees alive, but they also need shade. So the horticulture team has put up with this challenge. Um, so sometimes you will notice our big shade trees in a lot of the animal areas have to be wrapped with a, a special fencing that allows the trees to grow, but also keeps the animals out. So for example, in the Africa department, we have our big savanna, and they planted the most beautiful trees and they gave us so much shade. But of course, for those of you that are familiar with Hobbs, our lesser kudu, he loves to rub his horns and kind of fight with those trees. And you'll see that they'll have no branches from a certain height down or <laughs> some of them just end up dying. Or we have our painted dogs that love to rip the, I believe they're beech trees off the, you know, it's kind of like a papery bark. Birch, river birch. birch yes, yep. birch tree that they just tear those apart. They destroy all the grass. So green and beautiful. <laughs> so horticulture <laughs> designs these beautiful things and the animals come and do their their work on it so they have a lot fighting against them <laughs> it, it is a battle that is for sure and uh, but you know that that's what makes zoo horticulture is actually a pretty big uh, field uh, you know there's a lot of major cities all of them have zoos and we all kind of run into the same problem and uh, you know you want the shade you want the coolness you want the trees but you also you know have 
If you go in our black rhino yard, there's a big tree in the middle, and there's giant logs around it. And it's <laughs> yes. like, yeah, okay, design-wise, it may not be the prettiest, but there, it's, it's working, and it'll be shade. Once it gets to a certain point, we'll be able to remove the logs and maybe go with a, a different wrapping. But right now, he can just bulldoze the tree over. Right. When the tree gets bigger, you'll be able to just rub against it, and it'll be fine. So, you know, it's a long-term process and uh, a lot of fun. Good. Yeah, and you also have to make sure it's safe in case they want to eat them and all of that. Right, and I, because I know the draft's favorite day is the day that it rains because all of the branches they can't reach suddenly dip a little bit lower yeah. and they can reach them and they get extra snacks that day. It would be so frustrating to watch, I'm sure. But you mentioned that um, there are some plants that the deer don't bother. Mm -hmm. So my guess would be that they're potentially poisonous and they know that. And Sam has a little game for us. Oh, I and do. And I could be wrong. I don't know uh -oh. if the ones you mentioned that they won't eat are poisonous, but I think Sam has a game that kind of goes with it. You know, it, it is kind of funny because, you know, there are, well, maybe I should let you ask your questions. Or maybe toxic is the right word. Is it, yeah, know. yeah. You're gonna I mean, find poison out is something you would consume, right? So venom right. is something that is venom injected. Is something bites you, right? I don't know if there's a difference between toxic and poisonous, but there are trees and, and things that browse that we consider toxic that we can't feed our animals. Um, so I wonder if the deer know that about certain plants. I don't know. Bring it on. Okay, so what I have here, after doing a intensive 15-minute Google search, <laughs> I, I found a list of poisonous plants and then other non-poisonous plants, and one was from a list of the top deadly poisonous plants, and the other was a list of plants that you can forage in the wild and eat without any preparation. <laughs> so I'm going to mispronounce these, and Steve will probably know that, but I was going to challenge Jenna and Steve, and I'm going to name two plants, and they're going to have to tell me which one they think is non-poisonous, and I'm probably using the terminology, you know, it could be toxic, but we're going to see which ones you don't want to eat and which one you would want to eat. Okay. So the first two I have... First one's dandelions and white snakewort. <gasps> I know this one. Go ahead. Which one? Dandelions. Can't you eat the entire plant? They're... Have you ever had dandelion wine? No, I haven't. Okay. But did I know? I, I've, I've seen dandelion wine. I haven't had it, though. So they're... The, am I so right? So you are right. Dandelions and are the, the ones that are good. okay to eat. And then Everyone the, the... wants to destroy them as soon as they come up, but they're great for pollinators. And they, they used to be planted, I've read, instead of grass. And yeah. why wouldn't you want your yard filled with beautiful yellow flowers? Mm. You don't like dandelions? As I, much as I, I love them, but okay. you're going to have a lot of people in the community going, hmm. <laughs> We're trying to convince them otherwise. But yes, you can eat dandelions. And, and actually, I, I like the white snake. Root. It's a beautiful plant, and uh, it, it's a eupatorium. It's a native woodland around here. Oh, and, okay. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, you, you know, I think uh, if the animals ate it and then they fed, you know, milk to their child, that that's where it gets really toxic. It's, oh. it's more the um, so so oftentimes when it blooms in the summer. We, we go through all the exhibits and we kind of look and see if there's any floating around. Okay. See, that's just Steve joined his expertise because if you notice, if you go back to your uh, podcast a few seconds ago, I said white snake wart. That's just me messing up my handwriting. He knew that I was talking about snake root. So. <laughs> that's perfect. I got you. I didn't, Thank you. I didn't cover it. No, no, you can't. You can correct me. I, I'm, <laughs> I am not the expert here. All right. The next two we have English yew and milk thistle. You want me to take it? Yeah, I don't know the answer, but that's for sure. All right. Well, I can tell you this. English yew, the deer love it. They can eat it. However, 
All the other animals, like a cow or a horse, they die in a minute if they really? have a branch. Wow. So you, Texas or the U uh, that you see in front of everyone's front porches, or at least it used to be more common in fronts of porches, that's very toxic to animals, some animals. But like I said, the deer will eat it. Huh. And I don't know what red, that looks like. They've got those red berries on them, right? Yeah. Uh, and almost it like up. with the green um, heart center. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's the... The seed inside yeah. and the pulp around it. But, you know, it, 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 it's one of those ones where if you did clippings and you threw them, you know, over the fence for the cattle, you'd have dead cattle. Uh, so That's so interesting that the deer can eat it, but cattle can't. So is the milk thistle safe? Milk thistle is safe, okay. yes. Okay. Now, this next one, when I was reading the article, they said, the first one they're going to read, they say everybody pronounces it wrong. So, Steve, if I pronounce it wrong, please let me know. But I have purslane and water hemlock. Well, I'm going with the hemlock just, just for the heck of it, because I don't know. Um, well, although purslane's got milky sap in it. What's the Latin of the hemlock is my question. I'm going to say, I never, I took Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> you and my daughter get along fine. Man. So you think the hemlock is safe or poisonous? I think it's poisonous. Okay, that's what I thought. I've heard that hemlock is poisonous. Yeah, hemlock. Yeah, that's poisonous. I think that's always an ingredient in like witches' brews and like the lock of hemlock. You know, <laughs> and, and that sometimes it goes back to Latin names. You know, a lot of times you know people say, well, you know, cedar. Well, there, there's like seven different genus for the cedar you know oh. is it juniper is virginiana is it is it the eastern red cedar is it the white cedar which is you know totally different or is it the uh japanese red cedar uh cryptomeria i mean so you know us horticulturists in common names we're like latin name you know exactly what plant you're talking about which makes it even more impressive that you know <laughs> all of these plants and their latin names and their common names and it's like when you go on safari and they know all these different languages for all these different species of animals that I don't know in English in right. one yeah. language. Like, how do you do that? It's like, oh, elephant. <laughs> right. Got it. Right. <laughs> all right, our next two, we've got two left. So um, this is the second last one. Rosary pea and daylily. Well, I know you can eat the flowers of a daylily. So I'm going to say daylily is the one you can eat. Daylily is the one you can eat, yeah. <laughs> nice. Better say a prayer with that rosary because you're in for a bad time. Uh -oh. so. <laughs> Alright, and the last one, see if you can get this one. We have Deadly Nightshade oh. and Violets. Well, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> deadly Nightshade! Hey! <laughs> is that in Hunger Games? Uh, <laughs> I think so. Night something. Actually, Nightshade is a, a little vine with just a, a spectacular purple flower with a little yellow center, and and uh, it is around the zoo and ex in exhibits, and uh, yeah. you see that around. Uh, we don't like it, but we see it all the time. Uh, so that is a plant that we deal with you know, around here for the animals. I remember, yeah, one of my first seasonal jobs in the elephant house, Rick Hyde House, one of the oh, yeah. awesome, uh, re now retired elephant uh, guys taught me. I always have to look out for nightshade and how toxic it, toxic it is for the giraffe and to find it. So as a zookeeper, we have to go around and sometimes we'll call the horticulture team to come check and be like, is this toxic? Can we leave this plant? Should we pull it? 
Um, so it's about that time where we're going to have to start <laughs> looking out yeah. for all of this. And I appreciate the naming with that one. It's, you know, you know that you're not going to have a good time if you eat deadly nightshade. Right? Whereas, <laughs> hey, you want a rosary pee? I've got a bowl full of them. All right, okay. That's right. It's all good. So. Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with us? Um, you, you think the tulips will be in peak bloom mid-April? Is mm -hmm. that what guests can look for? Um, so anything else you'd like to share before you tell us what we can do? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think the one thing the horticulture department wants to share with everybody is plant diversity is number one. And when you come to the zoo, um, you know, a lot of people have plant blindness. You know, they, they just, you know, it's, they, they know there's stuff around them, but they really haven't taken the time to really look at the leaves and really look at the plant. And, and uh, I encourage everybody to get out there and, and look a little closer. And, uh, you know, and, and when you, you know, go through the landscape, your landscape, you look, do you have shade trees for the future? And again, you're not planting that oak tree for shade in the next 10 years, but we really need to do that because, you know, that's what's going to create, you know, the, the uh, you know, the, in the urban landscape, we have what we call the heat island effect. And it's all the asphalt buildings, the, the you know, just the, the heat builds up in these urban centers. And, uh, you know, and, th and that's kind of the difference between, I think, horticulture and e ecologists and natural areas folks is we deal with flat-out urban landscaping where they scrape off all the soil build the house maybe give you a quarter inch of that soil back and how do you grow things like in in the landscape and a lot of people walk around and say well I must have a brown thumb uh, so we've spent a lot of time uh, you know the whole zoo uh, being a botanical garden is trialing all the different types of plants and suggesting to people uh, they can go on our website and we have uh, brochures on large trees, medium trees, small trees, large shrubs, small shrubs, uh, annuals, perennials, grasses, all the different things that do well in the greater Cincinnati uh, region and uh, you know and the idea is just get a mix of as many different things as you can whether it's native don't be afraid of non-native as long as it's not invasive. Okay. And uh, and again, obviously most of what we use is probably 80% native anyway. Uh, don't be afraid of cultivars. Um, you know, maybe research the ones that the zoo recommends. And uh, um, and really go out and have fun. You know, even if it's just a little pot right outside. You know, grow fennel. You know, fennel is just a phenomenal plant um, for the. Uh, I think it's the black swallowtail eats the oh. fennel, and it's a beautiful feathery dark plant, especially the uh, the dark varieties or cultivars. And uh, just once you start, you know, you know when you get hooked, and it's like every piece of your yard starts to get planted up. <laughs> but that's that's the whole joy of it. Uh, the fennel's pretty; it's got a real nice black licorice smell. But then you go out every once in a while and you see a big old black swallowtail caterpillar on it. And it's like, hey, what's eating my fennel? I could better spray. Well, no, don't. Because uh, that's going to be that beautiful black swallowtail butterfly. And, and maybe um, make a goal of planting some um, you know, larval uh, plants for butterflies. Uh, for instance, the, there's a pipe vine. You know, it's not very common. 
It's a native vine with a heart-shaped leaf or kind of part shade, but the pipe vine swallowtail is the larvae that eats that. And without the pipe vine, you're not going to have a pipe vine swallowtail. Or uh, pawpaw, you know, maybe if you've got, I wouldn't put it in my very front landscape, but if I had a back fence line uh, or a back 40 or woods, pawpaw is a phenomenal tree. It gives you the pawpaws, but also that's the host plant for the zebra swallowtail. And, and, you know, maybe spice bush would be another plant that you could mix into your landscape. Why? It's a little yellow flower just about to come into bloom in about a couple weeks. Um, not super showy, but the uh, spice bush swallowtail needs the spice bush to lay its eggs on and uh, go through that. So, so when it comes to um, the, the butterflies that we all want to see, you need very specific plants. And that's where you get into the, hey, you really need to plant native plants. Well, that's what they're really talking about, those host plants for the larvae. Um, you know, if we want a monarch, we've got to have Asclepius or, or uh, you know, the, the um, you know, butterfly weed or, or swamp milkweed or uh, there's an annual one out there that we could use up here in the north. Um, so, you know, I, I challenge everyone to look up uh, those and there, there's many many trees that you know everything probably has something that eats and feeds and uh, so again you're helping all different insects and pollinators by planting many different flowering plants. That's such a good point. I'm glad you brought up the plant trial. I'm sure we could do a whole episode on that, right? Oh, yeah. uh, so okay, so we'll save that. But I, um, you guys do a trial and you figure out which plants are doing best in certain areas, right? And mm -hmm. and so the zoo put all of that work onto the website so you can check it out and find out what's right um, for your yard or your area or the shade or the sun or mm -hmm. that sort of thing, correct? Yeah. And then I guess my question would be, where can people find native plants? I have the hardest time, like going to Lowe's and I've even gone to a few nurseries. Is there a certain time, like I wanted to buy milkweed last summer, all I could find were seeds. Is there a good time or a good place you suggest? At least in the that's Cincinnati a, area? That's a great question. So I'm, I'm going to kind of parse that out in, in a couple ways. Uh, number one, I think a lot of, in horticulture, we never really separated out native from non-native. So when someone comes into a nursery and says, uh, which, which one of these are native? And you're like, I, I don't know. We, you know, they all grow here. Uh, you know, so, so sometimes the nursery, especially if it's a, you know, someone just selling plants at the nursery, uh, the owners and the order people that order know all the differences, but you know you get down to people just helping, and they might not know. Um, so you can always take our brochures with you, and then go, hey, th this is what I'm looking for. Uh, so first off, I think a lot of nurseries actually have a lot of great native plants. They might not even know how much good native plants they have. So so using our information, going to the local garden centers. Uh, usually, um, you know, like the milkweeds, milkweeds aren't the prettiest thing in the world. So they don't, they're not great sellers uh, for the, you know, nurseries. Okay. Um, and when it's not in bloom, you, a customer will look at it and go, that's, a, I don't want that. You know, you want, you want me to pay that for that? Uh, you know, it's, it's not something that you, uh, they make a lot of money on. Um, so. So having said that, you know, everyone's going to have milkweed this spring, and then it does. It goes pretty quick. Uh, so then it, you know, again, one of the big things that we've started at the zoo 
as we started our, our Boyer Farm native plant nursery. And uh, we're trying to focus on a lot of the plants that we've just talked about um, for that reason. So, you know, if I'm a small retail garden center, I'm trying to stay alive and make enough money to pay my bills. And if I've got a choice to sell a pretty flowering rose or a milkweed that isn't out of the pot yet, uh, you know, it's the way that it is. That makes sense, yeah. So, um, so, you know, it's, uh, so out at our Boyer property, about every uh, other, I think, April 24th, I think May 8th, every, and then from there, every second Saturday through the, or every, the second Saturday of the month throughout the season, we sell, we specialize in growing native plants. And, uh, you know, we might have 250 different varieties of native plants as, as well as that the Boyer farm actually supports we have eight Quonsets out there and a lot of that you know we, we know that if we you know seed out a bunch of this we know we could the zoo itself can use a, a chunk of it and new projects and things like that and and we want some of it planted out at our farm for research and then you know there's some that are going to be left over and that's what we sell at our plant sales and uh so it's a really a fairly complex, you know, nursery for a little old zoo and botanical garden. But Absolutely. Uh, it's really, it's helping support all the things that we do out there. So when you pr do purchase uh, from uh, our Boyer Farm Plant Sale, you're, you're helping all these other things that we do. Awesome. So you've told us a million things that we can do, but if you had to pick one, we always end the episode with what can I do? Give us one easy thing that folks could do listening. Oh, wait a second. You told me I just had to think <laughs> of something. I, now you got to narrow it down to one. Um, I, I would say if I had one thing to do, it'd be a plant a plant for a pollinator and, and probably a larval plant for a pollinator and register your garden. Um, one of the programs that we have is we're trying to register gardens for pollinator gardens all over the greater Cincinnati area. We're up to about 1,700 registered gardens throughout the community. And part of this is really simple. You can just get on our website or Plant for Pollinator website and, and you uh, register your, you know, your flowering plants that you have. And if you don't have any flowering plants, well, you need to go get some flowering plants from your local garden centers or the zoo's Boyer plant farm. But you know, the whole idea is to, again, make you take action and, exactly. you know, start. And how do you start? You start with one and, and then go uh, find some things that will, will give you joy. And, uh, you know, like I said, most flowering plants are good for insects. That's the whole point of flowers is to draw insects. But what one thing we did not touch on, and I'm sorry to go further on this, no. but... The one thing that people don't realize is the more flowering plants you have in your landscape, the more insects come to those flowers. Well, some of those insects are actually insects that help control uh, aphids and control. So at the zoo, we don't have to spray anything. We don't spray any insecticide here uh, because we have so many flowering plants that we have all the predators that take care of the bagworm and take care of other things. So. Planting flowering plants is a recipe for not having to use insecticides. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, please yeah. don't use insecticides. We, we yeah. hope you don't have to. Yeah, you'll get your own little ecosystem going. It takes care of itself after that. Perfect. And usually when you spray, 
the bad insects, what happens is you knock out the bad insects, but you also knocked out the good insects. And the bad insects always come back faster. And, and it really is a problem. Uh, so, um, you know, and there are cases, you know, if you have emerald ash, you have big ash tree and you want to treat for emerald ash borer, you can inject directly into the, you know, a professional would have to do it. But there are ways that you can treat specifically for that insect in that tree. So uh, again, I'm not going to say never use it because there are times where it is important. But uh, if we can handle it in 70 acres, I'm sure you can do it in your yard. And all that information, again, is on our website. So if you go to CincinnatiZoo.org and you look for the Plants for Pollinators, I believe it's the Plants for Pollinators Challenge, correct? Yes. Yep. You can find that, again, on the CincinnatiZoo.org. Awesome. This has been so great. Yeah, Thank thanks, you for Steve. talking thanks plants for with in. us. We'll definitely, we have plenty to talk about. We can have you back again. Yeah. But I really hope anybody in the Cincinnati area or anyone who wants to, well, it's hard to, it's hard to encourage you all to make a trip during these times, but if you are planning on making a trip to the zoo, mid-April is a great, beautiful, beautiful time to come to the zoo. It always is beautiful, but uh, those tulips are fantastic. Thanks again. I'm Sam. And I'm Jenna. And this is Cincinnati Zoo Tales.